Welcome to the Spike Feed, your leading Magic the Gathering podcast. What is up? My name is Curtis, and I'm just your typical Spike. On the line with me, a man who I can guarantee knows nothing of any secret layers that have been announced. My good buddy <laughs> and producer extraordinaire, Cameron McCoy. Dude, how's it going? You called it, man. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you should be thankful for that. I, I, I'm like putting together. So for those people that don't know, so Cameron handles like the technical end of the show, and I put together the show notes every week. And sometimes my my end of the job is it ranges from kind of easy to extremely easy, right? <laughs> um, but whenever the big news is, hey, some new secret layers, and that's been the news many times over the past year, it's led to some rough waters in terms of things to talk about for competitive magic. And that sucks. That mm. sucks. Um, <laughs> I don't care about your stupid alternate art. Liliana's whatever. Like, I'm just... Ah, anyway. But we're going we're gonna to get back to meat and potatoes, Cameron. We're talking competitive magic today. And not just competitive magic, competitive legacy. Mm. Which, if I'm reading the show notes correctly, you have engaged in. I have engaged in. Uh, well, you, that, that's being kind, I guess, to say that I engaged. Uh, I lost horribly. <laughs> so I'm playing a um, sub-optimized list from 2019 against a wide field of uh, blue-red opponents. Um, you don't say. So, you know, whatever. I had a great time in the sense it's paper magic, I'm playing against people that I enjoy playing against, uh, and I'm playing a legacy deck that I absolutely adore, despite it being not optimized. So this is blue-white control. We're talking Snapcasters, um, Jaces, a couple of Teferis. Like, I mean, there's nothing new with this list. I just don't have... Um, the one card that I should probably be playing in this list and then tweaking it a little bit, and that is Raghavan. Um, Raghavan has just taken over the world. Um, and this is just a continuation from our discussion from three or four weeks ago. Uh, I, it, it's Delver... I'm sorry, it's not Delver. It is um, um, Deathrite Shaman 2.0. I mean, it's... Enabling four-color decks again, which to me is always... When you have a very competitive four-color deck, I find that to be a red flag. That's problematic, in my opinion, especially for Legacy. Um, or Wasteland's top, legal. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> All those things on uh, are, are super interesting. Um, and where, like, it's not an oppressive card, but, like, in Legacy, I mean, they nip oppressive cards instantly normally um it's the ones that like this that are the slow burners that are clearly a problem i would say most of legacy players find it to be a problem um and it's just that it's enabling you to have perfect mana which in legacy um is great for you but like I don't know if it's like the actual good thing that should be what legacy is about. Um, so whatever, Ragavans there. I should be playing it. I'm not. Um, I'm not buying my Ragavans because I really do expect that card to be banned. Um, I would hope in the near future, but within the year, I expect it to be banned. 
Dude, get on the bus. I'm driving it. Raghavan, show him the door. It's so obvious. I think it was obvious from two weeks into this for both Modern and Legacy. And, again, people are letting their the price that they paid for these things dictating mm. um, like why they think it should be acceptable. But it, it, like if this were a $3 rare from Return to Ravnica, we wouldn't even be entertaining this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I hate that rarity is impacting the the way in which we perceive should something be banned or not, but this is not an acceptable Magic the Gathering card. And, mm-hmm. like, listen to you. You're talking about playing this in Jeskai Control, right? And yeah. essentially, again, like, Legacy, I think, is a portent for what is going to happen with Modern. Is with Raghavan, you are either playing it or playing a deck that can very clearly ignore it. Like lands or something that you just, it doesn't matter yep. that they have yep. a Raghavan. But if you're playing creatures, like I keep seeing death and taxes lists that are still mono white and I don't understand why. Like, why would you not play Raghavan in that deck? So, anyway, proceed. Uh, speaking of which, what you're talking about, the decks that are doing really well that seem to don't care, don't care. I've seen lands as one that exists. I didn't play against it, I didn't see it. Elves is the other one that seems pretty decent against the Raghavan field. Um, I feel like Elves can do fairly well against Blue-Red Delver in general, um, just because you have such a wide um, you know, swing that you can go at uh, when it comes time for you to, to combo off. Um, it's really, really good. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, played against a four-color Zenith deck, um, that was running on. like Uro. Uh, it was running Expressive Iteration, and that was the Red Splash. Expressive Iteration is so good that a three-color Bant deck is now playing, you know, Green Sun Zenith and Expressive Iteration. That's how good that card is. Um, incredibly powerful. Like, I can't get over... Like, that's the one card where I do feel like I should be splashing red in my blue-white control list solely for expressive iteration because it... I mean, the card filtration on that is, like, really good quality, right? I mean, obviously, in Standard, it's great. Um, In Legacy, it's amazing. Um, And then the thing I just want to kind of, like, posit, going back with Raghavan... And some of the other things that I just find to be problematic, not really with Legacy, but with the cards that come from Modern Horizons, specifically two right now. Can a Delver deck, Curtis, be called a Delver deck when the lists are only running two Delvers? Um, I, I don't know how many like blue-red opponents. I see two Delvers. It's four Dragon Rage, four Raghavan, four Murktide Regent. Like, I mean, we're getting to that point now where the creature, like, when when 12 creatures can enter from one set and completely be reshape a legacy deck and become effectively the best deck um, in legacy, to me, that is um, really just not acceptable. <laughs> I mean, with, with legacy, with the card variety that exists the the history of the game for 25 or almost 30 years now and the 12 best creature cards right now were printed in the last modern master set and that to me um or modern horizon set excuse me just 
is just bad. It just personally just does not um, speak well to the design of like what what should be happening within Legacy. So can I ask, did you get your box topper? Did you get your alternate art? Did you get your collector's booster of Modern yeah. Horizons 2? Cameron, these are the questions that we're supposed to be asking. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, Dude, come no, on. no, and no. <laughs> See? Well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Think clearly. about think about what a Ragavan could be worth, Cameron. Like this this is like this is the problem with the philosophy of printing. And I don't know enough about Yu-Gi-Oh to know this is true, but multiple people have told me this feels like how Yu-Gi-Oh operates. Maybe that's concerning to you, maybe it's not, but you're right. And like, look, the past year and a half has been completely detrimental to non-rotating formats. Yes, there is a natural march of time. So something like Nimble Mongoose had its time, now it's gone. Tarmogoyf has had its time, and now it's gone. But these are cards that fade, right? These mm. are not cards that like, oh, hey, the entire creature base has changed because of one set, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's the difference here. And I would also point out to you that I think this stuff is still not moving as quickly as it should. Like I just mentioned with Ragavan and Death and Taxes. Like when you go through the legacy and vintage like deck list, and I'm not saying that these players are bad. They're almost certainly better than me. And they're but it's just like when you don't have high dollar amount, uh high uh exposure tournaments, the innovation is lacking and people don't feel as pushed into pushing the decks as hard as they can. Right? Mm-hmm. I always use the example. There was a GP that put Crater Hope Behemoth in elves. It used to not be. Right? The whole thing was draw and make a bunch of elves. The end. Right? And then the uh, ability for Crater Hope, like that took a Grand Prix and people designing that deck to do it. And that, those kinds of things don't happen. So I think the rate at which you're seeing it would be worse, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. obnoxious. But like, you know, I always use. Modern is the example. So, like, now, supposedly, the blue-red is kind of uh, dissipating and people are trying some other things. <coughs> I haven't looked at the SCG results for today because I think there was a Modern event today online. Um, but I-, I just don't know that I like the cycle of it all. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I've been knee-deep in Standard and really enjoying that design. But, again, clearly some people don't like Standard. Um <laughs> There's been a lot of complaints about it, and especially All Runs Epiphany. But I find the medicine for that is just keep playing blue-black Cameron and just keep getting paired against blue-red dragons and just keep <laughs> having a blast. Um, counter everything, kill everything, laugh at their All Runs Epiphany. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill all your stuff. You know, come to your house, kick your dog, steal, steal a steak out of your fridge. I don't care. <laughs> It is so much fun, and I recognize that there are a tr- ton of problems with this standard, but I'm having so much fun with it. Now, here's here's kind of the major topic for today, and I just want to merge our whole first segment. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at standard prices lately, though? Uh, no, not recently. Not for, like, the last three weeks. So, according to MTG Goldfish, four Goldspan Dragons, $170. So we're back to standard decks being from, because like right when COVID ended, or I shouldn't say COVID ended, right when things started to reopen, that would be a better mm-hmm. way to express that. Um, right when things started to reopen, I got into Rogues for 80 bucks, 
you could get into mono green for slightly less or mono white. Uh, the ultimatum deck was uh, quite a bit more expensive because, weirdly, the triumphs were very expensive. But other than that, you could get into it pretty handily. You just bought into a blue-white deck in paper. Looks like you bought at the low. Bucks. Yeah, I bought it pretty low. So, and maybe that deck has not really changed because, uh, you know, it's not really made a splash. But, especially the blue-red deck is now in that $300, $400 range. Um, on one hand, I'm encouraged. I guess on the other, I'm concerned. Where are you at on that, man? Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, is this any... Di- I mean... In a way, this bodes well. I like that this is this is happening. It means more people are playing standard, and I'm okay with that. Um, is it any worse than um, standard with Return to Ravnica when you know, like the blue white control list? I remember being three hundred bucks, you know, to get mm-hmm. into that, or like your Thought Seasons, Muta Vaults, All those things are you know fairly expensive. Um, the premium, you know, great cards of those sets. So, I don't know. I mean, um, to me, it means more people are playing, and I'm okay with that. I'm, I, I seriously, am okay with that. Yeah, I, I'm largely encouraged. I do know some of it is about supply limitation. Yeah, like there were. I, I think I told this story. Like how I ended up buying into Flesh and Blood was, I had set aside things to sell to get Gold Span Dragons, decided not to. That ended up working out financially because the flesh and blood cards tend to be worth something, uh, especially if you open certain ones. So, like, I think I came out even there, but it's just kind of like, wow, th- these are doing really well. Like, the lands are starting to go up, but like, Ren and Seven, it's about 30 bucks a piece, you know? Um, Asika's Chariot, which some people still, for some reason, want to be banned, you know, those are much more affordable. Um, but it- it's a good sign that this is happening. I think it just means that more people, like you said, are playing it. And if you're looking to play this format, Goldspan Dragons are very hard to find in people's trade binders. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the, the the pathways are gradually going up in price. So I think that's an indication where if this were an older format, I think maybe I would just be worried that this is a price grab or you know any of that pump and dump stuff that happened with the reserve list. So overall, I'm positive, even though like uh, I see the team of mid ranges hit 450, which tends to be a little bit on the expensive end yeah. of a standard deck. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, something worth noting. Um, I think I will st- I will probably still play digital just because of where I'm at with my working life right now. Winter time is always like fall to winter is always like impossible for me to get to a shop. Um, are you gonna keep grinding away at that blue white deck? Yeah, man. I mean, I still have it. Um, I'll probably play next week again and uh, have at it. As, I mean, like, I am of the <laughs> in this weird place where I want all Runes Epiphany to be banned. I hate playing that card. I hate casting it against my opponents, but I'm winning games with it. <laughs> I've been winning quite a few games with it, So, and I've been making money. So, like, I've made my money back from those all Runes Epiphanies. So, at this point, I'm okay if it or to be banned, but um, also just for, like, I think the quality of the game, uh, it's time, even with the new cards coming in, I feel like that that's still just going to be just this thing hanging over us that is just inevitable. Yeah, I would also point out, Allrun's Epiphany is a mythic from the same set as Goldspan Dragon, and I think a lot of people think it's going to be banned because it's at, like, $15, <laughs> not, not yeah. what Goldspan Dragon's at. 
So I have a weird operational question for you, okay? I have never in person played against a foretell card. So when you foretell your Allruns Epiphany in person, do you just put it face down in front of you? How do you signify that? Where do you put the card? Um, I guess I just, yeah, it's face down in front of me. I, I have like a little exiled spot I always keep like to the side of the battlefield, I guess. It's in front of me, but to the side. Yeah. Interesting. I don't yeah, know. Cause like, I was thinking- yeah, like you're right. Like there is not a tried and true, this is where this needs to go. Um, so be a trendsetter, Curtis. <laughs> yeah. Well, like an arena, it's kind of quasi in your hand, right? I don't know if yeah, I should just, yeah. I should lick it and put it on my forehead. <laughs> that's the, that's the appropriate thing to do. <laughs> because I mean, you know, I'm foretelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, forehead telling. That's what I'm doing. All right. <laughs> Dad joke. <laughs> All right, Cameron. We actually have uh, a sci-fi epic to talk about that came out this week. But first, before we get out, I do want to mention we are not going to have a show next week because of my horrendous schedule. Uh, I will endure uh, many negative comments from Cameron, basically harassment, cyberbullying. It's true. Um, but we just we just can't get our schedules to work out next week. So I just want to get that out there. But anyway, let's get let's get out of this segment. Come back and talk about the myriad of other things that are going on. All right, Cameron, so we are going to talk roughly about Dune. I um, have only seen the first half of it. I'm finishing this evening. But I want to ask you before we get into that, talk to me. We have not actually exchanged words at all about the upcoming Batman film. Yeah, man. There's a couple trailers that have come out. Um, I'm really interested in your thoughts on it because it is. I think, I think it definitely has a different vibe than the Nolan stuff. Yeah, yeah. Where you at on it? Uh, I'm, I'm digging what I'm seeing. I, I, I just full disclosure. I like Robert Pattinson a lot. I think he's a really solid actor. Um, it's amazing that both him and Kristen Stewart have been able to rise above and beyond their twilight days. Um, like, you know, if you told me the twilight actor was like a legit great actor, um, is going to be the next Batman. I would have laughed here in, in your face in 2009, right? Um, mm-hmm. But those so, those movies were cash grabs. Like they could have aired oh, on the yeah, CW. Yeah, they knew what they like, were, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're young actors. Yeah, whatever. No, and those movies, no fault for them, right? Yeah. And those movies got made at the speed of sound, dude. Like I think all <laughs> four of them came out at like two years or something. <laughs> so anyway, continue. Uh, this trailer, I'm digging. Hey, I mean, like Paul Dano as the Riddler. I, I'm really liking the weird, twisted, Zodiac, David Fincher director sort of vibes that they're kind of putting on a Batman story. Um, and it being kind of like this, I hope, Batman detective story um, is great. Like, big thumbs up for me. Uh, I, I would say, like, my biggest complaint about, like, the Christopher Nolan Batman stuff, and they're great, but... The the stakes were always so huge. I mean, like Gotham's very soul is at at stake yeah. in every single movie, right? Um, and sometimes with like a like some of my favorite Batman stories, 
I mean, they're not the long Halloweens. They're not. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's the stuff that it's pretty small, really. It's just like mm-hmm. Batman finding this crime syndicate and taking down X and Y for for the villain of the week. And sometimes those are sometimes I think the best Batman stories. Um, and so I hope they kind of lean into that sort of thing where like the end of the world isn't at stake. Um, and you know, I'm totally down for it. Um, the vibe and everything looks great. Um, it seems to be influenced from like some of the Batman night of owls stuff from like the, gosh, when was that? 2010, 2011 era, 12. I can't remember, Mm -hmm. but, um, all that I'm digging, I'm digging it a lot. So same, and I gotta be honest with you, dude. I've never seen any of this dude's Planet of the Apes movies, so mm. I know I know that's like where this guy is coming from, and people have said really kind things about those movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just uh, I've just never gotten to them, but um, this is probably the most influenced by modern Batman comics of any version of Batman we've seen. Uh, like even like you know I love a bunch of the stuff from Nolan, but like. Dude, that's pretty much Batman Year One. I mean, we're talking about an '80s version of Batman. Yeah. Um, and so, and like extrapolated out, and it would have been interesting to see what the Nolan movies would have looked like if Heath Ledger would have lived. I mean, I think that's always going to be the big asterisk that mm-hmm. hangs over it. Um, but obviously, I'm a massive Batman fan. But I agree with you. A lot of times, these smaller Batman stories are best. You know. Uh, and the animated series always really illustrated that, like that mm. episode where the two kids rescue him from the penguin and it's this little itty bitty story or my favorite story or one of my favorite, I could keep doing this forever, but one of my favorite animated episodes is almost got him where they always, all these villains are talking yeah, about how they yeah, almost yeah, yeah. had an opportunity to catch Batman and missed him. And so the thing, the, there's a few things that I want to p- highlight here. Like, first of all, I, I will be the first to admit I don't love how deep modern Batman has got into the Catwoman love story. Um, the design and look of Catwoman in this, though, really got got me pumped. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, with all deference to Anne Hathaway, who I think is a great actress, I think they made her Catwoman very forgettable. Mm-hmm. Um, and Catwoman is inherently an extremely dangerous character. And so I'm, you know, I'm hoping this trailer, like, indicates that right the other thing i would say is i'm really glad there's no joker because please god stop there are other villains here that are worth experiencing and the riddler has the greatest variability in the way he's been interpreted Mm. over time so we've had the riddler like in the animated series where he's this nerdy dude who's like you know trying to set up like you know these labyrinthian like traps we've had serial killer versions of the riddler um the current riddler is much more of a crime boss um and so it, it's interesting to see what they're going to pull from you, right? It does feel like a serial killer vibe, um, and that's cool too, right? I think that really meshes with that character. But you could find out that he's also a mob boss, and it would – I mean, there's there's yeah. so many valid interpretations of that character. Anyway, the, just the design, the look, I was like, wow, this is like 2000s-era Batman. Like you were talking about Court of Owls, but even like the current stuff, like the Tom King stuff, there's a lot of that here, and it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, it's dark and drab, and that's Batman. But to your point about saving the city stuff, the Nolan movies really got locked into that, like, constantly. Yeah. And and the, the that's not really the concept. 
right? I feel that feels like you're grafting Superman onto it. Like the whole idea yeah. is that Gotham is already a disaster, and he's just this one man just trying to push back the tide a little bit, right? Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I'm encouraged by that. I'm also encouraged by the first hour of Dune. Um, good looking movie, Cameron. Dude. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I tried to find the biggest screen in town to go and watch this on, and um, it looks great. Um, so for me, the sci-fi stuff, the things that like that really speak to me as a sci-fi nerd is kind of like that first Star Wars movies. There is just like they just sit and hang on some of the spaceships for a while. Like with the um, the thopters, the way that they kind of like open up and take off and have like this dragonfly vibe, mm-hmm. they really spend some time just ch- like it, it feels like those characters actually know how to run the, that that equipment and to fly it, and that, that world just feels lived in the way. Like I feel like they really did a good job, and it, Lucas did a great job in the first Star Wars movie. And sometimes I just feel like that stuff is just. It's set decoration. It's set pieces. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't feel like it's actually part of the world in a lot of sci-fi films. Um, I feel like Battlestar did a really great job. You know, like these these characters know this world, this this equipment that they work with, and I feel like that little aspect that I'm I'm talking about is distilled into everything else within Dune. It just really feels like they did a great job owning this world. Um, and I'm really digging that. Um, I'm also just surprised at <laughs> everybody says Dune is kind of unfilmable, um, kind of like how The Watchmen is unfilmable. Um, and I find it interesting. While I feel like maybe some of the concepts aren't perfectly translated from book to film, uh, it's pretty literal in the the narrative that it's telling, and I, I can't believe how one to one it feels like as far as like what's going on in the book followed by what's going on in the the movie. And I, I felt like I was was on top of following everything that was happening. So good looking film. Love the way that um, the production design and everything feels like it's actually part of this world. Um, I I really um surprised at how much I've been enjoyed this film. I think I think it's a testament that it's made me look back more fondly on my time with the book that I didn't finish. Yeah. yeah. Um because I'll say this for Dune while I did not finish it. I know the story just because I can't imagine being a sci-fi nerd of our age and not knowing of Dune. Sure. Like it's just part of the culture. It was kind of like you know, oh hey, you, the sci-fi fantasy section before like i'm not even kidding like if you before wheel of time you went to the sci-fi section and there were like four different authors right sci-fi mm-hmm. fantasy it was like hey you get lord of the rings stuff you get the shinara stuff <laughs> isaac asimov and dune how do you feel what do you got like even the conan stuff was hard to find in print right mm-hmm. like the original conan stuff so anyway like you just kind of had this cultural awareness of dune and I've loved the, the I love the theme and I love what Dune is trying to do and what it's about and its influence on sci-fi. I've just never liked the way the book itself is written. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I I've tried to get past that and I just can't and it's a preference thing and it is what it is. But this 
movie explains some of the things in a much more clear manner. Uh, and I, I, again, I'm only halfway through it, but like what spice is and how it works and what it does is much more clearly explained than my recollection of the book or what exactly the trap is that the kind of the main family is stepping into, which I think is a little bit obfuscated in the book until, Mm -hmm. you know, you run into the villain. Um, That being said, it is still this like far distant sci-fi. It is not like, I know you didn't get very far in the expanse, but the expanse is much more rooted Mm. in like what is going on. And it kind of cracked me up because my wife was like, you know, I really don't like sci-fi, but I like Dune. And I was like, Holly, I don't know how to tell you this, <laughs> but this is kind of the definition of you probably just like sci-fi. You know, like it doesn't yeah. get much more sci-fi than Dune. I'm sorry. Like that's, you know. Um, I but would that, say I just, Dune has so many like fantasy elements in it with the houses where it's like, Okay, Game of Thrones clearly has so many of like the political intrigue things happening in Dune or from Dune, right? That if you're into that sort of thing, I feel like if you don't know anything about Dune and you walk into that, it's like, hey, I actually can relate to this. This feels like Game of Thrones or something like that. So maybe, maybe that's why. I don't know. I guess, I guess to me, the crossover isn't like as clear cut as that, but I see where you're mm-hmm. coming from because mm-hmm. it's hard, it's hard to talk about these things a without spoiling anything, but B without like looking at fantasy as a post game of Thrones experience where fair. totally fair to me, to me, like this is, this is, does have an element of the hero's journey. It's kind of negatively commenting on that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And while I think that's cool, I also just think it's kind of dissecting human psychology a little bit. Where Star Wars is like so not interested in that. Like Star Wars is straight up a fantasy novel just masquerading. Like it just happens yeah. to be taking place in space, right? So I don't know. Maybe that's just baggage that I'm taking it now that I like thinking about it. That to me, sci-fi is not about the hero's journey. To me, that's way more of a fantasy thing. But yeah. it's certainly not mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, closed-minded or whatever, you know? I'm afraid of thinking outside the box. And fear is the mind killer, Cameron. It's tr- so true, man. <laughs> anyway, but if someone would like to get old... Oh, by the way, and if we're saying, if you have never seen this, any of this guy's movies and you were watching Dune, like, go back and watch Blade Runner. Oh, my uh, gosh. That movie, Everything I- Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve has done, like, I love. Prisoners. Dark. Dark, 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 but so good. Like, super good. Sicario? Didn't he do the first Sicario? Sicario. He did the first uh, one of that. I think that thing had some narrative issues, but gorgeous movie. Yeah. Um, But, like, I w- sat down. Maybe it was a fact, like, a thing with my expectations, and we might have talked about it on the show. I'm sure we did. But I, you know, all I knew is Blade Runner was a sequel, not by Ridley Scott, and Harrison Ford showed up with clearly no interest in putting on a costume. And I was like, there's no way this is going to be good. And it blew my mind. I thought uh-huh. it was great. So anyway, Cameron, if someone would like to you uh, get a hold of you and talk to you about Harrison Ford's costumes, where can they find you? <laughs> That's all on Twitter, at Cameron underscore McCoy. And I am at Curtis Now. Our official show feed is at SpikeFeedMTG. We'll talk to you guys next week.